So good evening, or if you are on the west coast of America, good morning. Uh, my name is Ellie Harrington. Welcome to the event tonight, which is hosted by Kingston University. And it's about the 2020 U.S. election and COVID-19, one year on. We have three wonderful speakers tonight. Um, our first speaker is Dr. Peter Finn, who's a multi-award-winning senior lecturer, waving there, in politics at Kingston University. He is interested in democracy, human rights, national security, and the U.S. electoral system. He is currently co-editing a volume focused on the official record, the rule of law, national security, and democracy. So just a few light topics there, Peter. Thank you. <laughs> he is project lead on the COVID-19 and democracy project, <clears throat> and also co-curator of the LSE USA series, What Happened? Our second speaker tonight is Madison Imiola, a 2020 graduate of the MA in Human Rights at Kingston University, who's now working as a civil rights investigator for the Washington State Human Rights Commission. And our third speaker on screen is Dr. Robert Ledger, who has a PhD in political science from Queen Mary University of London. He previously worked as a lecturer at Kingston University and currently lives in Frankfurt am Main. He teaches at Schiller University Heidelberg and the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management and is a visiting researcher at Frankfurt Goethe University. So you're very busy. Right. <laughs> he is the author of Neoliberal Thought and Thatcherism, A Transition from Here to There. Uh, he is also co-curator of the LSE USAP series, What Happened? And um, our first speaker tonight is Peter. Can I pass it over to you? Sure, thanks. And we, I should say, um, we, we should miss this opportunity to note that Ellie's piece on Arizona is, I think, and Rob can correct me if I'm wrong, by far our most read piece ever on that series, by about 12,000 reads, I think. It certainly was the last time I read it. I don't know whether that's, that's probably to do with the, um, at least in part to do with the all the hijinks around the Arizona election, but still impressive nonetheless. Um, so, can everyone see my slides? Yeah, okay, all right. So, um, as Ellie said, and if you don't know me, I'm Pete Finn, and I am a lecturer in politics at King's University. And this is um, a panel to discuss um, the election of 2020 in the US with relation to COVID-19. And we'll probably, especially at least in the q and I imagine, get into some um, discussion or um, thinking about what might happen today in Virginia and New Jersey, and various other um, elections going on in the US and then probably also towards the midterms. Um, the panel itself and the publications it builds on sit within a project which I've been leading since last spring called the COVID-19 and Democracy Project. Um, and if you're one of my students, you're probably bored of hearing me say that because I bang on about it all the time. But if you're not, then welcome to the project. Um, outputs include reports and briefs and uh, a large part of the work that went into this panel, builds on a brief that myself, Rob and Madison put together. We do a weekly podcast, which is the podcast the series that this event will be put out within. Um, we've done comment pieces, there's been various talks, um, media appearances. We've got a developmental website. If you come across our website at the moment, be nice and forgiving. It's very much in the developmental stage, and I'm very much new to putting websites together. Um, and then 
further on, probably next year now, we'll be developing teaching materials um, around COVID-19 and various elements of democracy. Um, another big part of the work that fed into this is the series that Ellie mentions, um, that both she's written for, that myself and Rob Curate and Madison has written for on numerous occasions with myself and Rob, which is at the LSE Center, the LSE US Center. Uh, we've been running it for a year now, and it builds on prior series that we've run along the same lines. Um, and so hopefully some of you may have come across that before. Um, the brief that there's panel builds on is this brief which we published in June um, and uh, called Pandemic Politics and it essentially explores the relationship between uh, the intersection of the pandemic and the election um, and I just wanted to start so um, anyone who's ever done any project like this knows that it doesn't happen by an individual right I know we're meant to kind of atomize ourselves and pretend that we're all consumers but to be quite frank I think that's stupid so um, I just wanted to say thanks to a whole bunch of people who have fed into this brief and into the project. So first one um, is Alison Babstock, who is here, and she wrote a wonderful forward for the brief. So Alison, thank you very much. Um, second one is Ellie, <laughs> who very kindly agreed to, um, without a moment's thought, I think, <laughs> agreed to chair the panel. That was very nice. Um, Steve Kent, who's a PhD student um, in the department, um, he was the project RA while we were putting the brief together. So, and actually, both him and Alison provided really good feedback um, on that. Um, Chris Gilson, who couldn't be with us tonight, but um, if you've ever read anything about US politics in the UK, you probably, even unknowingly, are aware of Chris's work. He's the editor of that site, and. I mean, someone give the guy an honorary PhD. He does such good work for the kind of US studies in the UK. So um, please, if you don't know, if you're not aware of him, you probably have read something that he's edited. Um, all of the contributors to the series, we're up to dozens now. We've had over 100 posts, I think, across three iterations of it. Lots of support in the department. And really a big shout out to the KU promo events and web teams. Um, that, like the, none of this stuff can gets known about um, unless they get so anyway I'll stop stop now but thank you to all of you much appreciated um, so I'll let Madison and Rob get into much more detail in a moment about this but in brief our contention is and it's explored in much more detail in our brief and in a series of posts that we're currently putting out on the um, as part of our series our contention is that you can't really understand either the COVID-19 pandemic in the US or the election of 2020 during that period from sort of March to um, January, February 2020 without under, without looking at them both. It's not that we in any way deny that it's a, a, the pandemic is a biological phenomenon and then that has, you know, there's parts of it that we clearly don't understand. Like I'm not an epidemiologist, but they fed into each other. And um, by looking at them both, you can hopefully and we hopefully have developed a more nuanced understanding of the two. Um, just some brief uh, context. Uh, I mean, 2020 was likely to be consequential anyway. Um, US presidential elections only happen every four years, and so those of us that are um, crazy enough to follow it and write about it are kind of used to that cycle anyway. Um, and so, you know, before years, you've got the, the whole of the House comes up for election, the third Senate and the presidency, and then all of the, um, I'm just going to, someone's waiting to come in the lobby, so <laughs> this is smooth, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that's my PhD student, Ed. 
to see you. Um, so it was primed to be like an important election anyway, an important year. But then came a global pandemic. Um, this is just where we are now in the US. The, stigma, the figures, I mean, if you get lost or a bit numbed by the figures, but they are staggering, right? Um, it seems likely that the US is going to hit a million deaths, which is, I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, I don't quite have the words for it, to be quite frank. Um, you know, 45 million cases thus far, you would imagine that will probably hit 50 million at some point in the next few months. Um, and so, you know, the, um, <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I doubt I'm talking to anyone who is a COVID denier, but I mean, if you are, then please just have a look at these statistics and, and, and draw a breath. Um, in terms of how the, the pandemic and the election fit together, our work seems to suggest that you can, they fit together quite well when thought about with relation to the stages of the US election cycle itself. So um, the US presidential electoral cycle begins, formally begins anyway, in kind of February when the primaries begin. And the, um, the pandemic itself, as with much of Europe, hit the US you know, in significant numbers, it was obviously around before that, but hit the US in, in, with significant impact in March. And that was so during the primaries, um, there was kind of often adaptations made at speed to change things. Um, there was quite a lot of cancellations of primaries um, and there was lots of legal challenges and legal disputes, delayed results, and lots of things that we would come to be familiar with um, with the November election happened in the primaries. The second stage sort of slotted quite well into the, the period which fits into having the um, the debates in late autumn and then in early autumn having the conventions. So both parties, the Democrats and Republicans, had to move their conventions online um, as a result of COVID-19. Um, the Democrats, it's fair to say, did so in a slightly more smoother manner. Um, the Republicans, largely led by Trump, um, at least locally, um, went through a much more torturous process to get there, but essentially ended up with an online convention, although there were some events where there was not social distancing. And then finally, the period from the election itself in November right through to um, Biden becoming presidency. So they're the kind of three stages um, within our analysis. Um, the pandemic itself, so just some stats to kind of back up the effects of the pandemic on the election. So 18 out of 57 Democratic primaries were suspended, but that which is significant in and of itself, but actually before that even taken place, 27 primaries had taken place as normal. So you were kind of talking about 18 out of 30, which is, you know, that's really is significant. Um, there were changes made to the number of polling stations. So one particular example which sticks out is that in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, the number was cut from 180 to five. That you know, significant. You can see why things like voting by mail became more and more important. Likewise, in Ohio, the primary was cancelled with just uh, like literally hours' notice, despite um, early voting having been going on for, for weeks before that. Um, and just to before I pass over to Rob, um, sorry, someone else is jumping in to from the lobby. Um, just some key themes to think about that come out of our work in terms of policy. Um, 
obviously, I mean, <laughs> truism, right, to say that the US is a huge and diverse and complex country. And so running elections in that country is complex and costly and um, will continue to be so. Um, those processes themselves are ever-evolving. Um, some of those evolutions can be to facilitate and make voting easier, and some of them, as Madison will get into later, um, are done to deliberately restrict once the ability of certain voters to vote, right? Um, but without continuing investment, um, and I think this is shown throughout 2020, without continuing investment in, in the people who run elections, the processes involved in them, and the infrastructure, so from kind of um, like what, where the ballots are placed, how they're how they put together, where, how they're sent out through to kind of voting machines, without continuing investment in that, um, the ability of people to kind of um, vote in a, in a legitimately um, contested election is obviously reduced. Um, there was lots of misinformation around mail-in voting. Um, you know, if you go back and, I mean, thankfully, I'm glad to not... Uh, have to look follow the president's Twitter feed <laughs> anymore. Um, but I mean, if you think about all those tweets that Trump was continually sending out for months around mail-in voting, despite voting by voting by mail himself, um, and not just him, his supporters, um, you know, and it wasn't just around mail-in voting, but that was a big part of it. And I think the attack on the Capitol demonstrates how those kind of narratives can be can be dangerous. Um, I like this quote from Priscilla Southwell, um, who's at the University of Oregon. I definitely encourage people to engage with her work. Um, and I just talk about you know this idea of unintended consequences, right? Like when you suppress votes or vote voters, do you also suppress supporters within your own party or group? If so, this tactic may come back to haunt you in this election and beyond. Um, so it's something important to think about there. I mean, especially when, you know, you, at different points in time, you have a light, realignment of who votes for what party. So if you're suppressing voters that might one day want to vote for you, that might be slightly okay, <laughs> to disadvantage yourself in the long run. And then finally, um, this issue um, is related to the legal system around votes. And to be clear, it's not that any, we're saying that lawsuits are not a legitimate way to sometimes um, and disputes or for people, it's not legitimate to have lawsuits around elections, right? It might be in many cases that actually during the COVID-19 pandemic, the quickest way to decide something at speed under pressure and in a health crisis was to have elections, but sometimes the uh, legal process themselves going to overwhelm the process. So for instance, in New York, some Democrats preemptively filed suit against fellow Democrats before primaries had even encountered us in order to make sure they could challenge people's votes, other the votes of other candidates in their own party if they lost. Um, and then obviously, I'm sure you're much more aware of all of the legal challenges put um, forward by Trump and his supporters. Um, and I guess just to end on, um, a quote from Wendy Scattergood, another um, academic who I would encourage you all to engage with, um, who's in Wisconsin. Do we really want the courts deciding our elections? And I think um, that's quite a good place to leave it. So I'll pass it over to Ellie or Rob, whoever wants to take the floor. <laughs> Rob, please, would you um, give your talk? Thank you so much, Pete. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Let's see if I can share my. Screen. Okay. Can you see that? Yes, we can. Yes, great. 
Okay, so I'm going to briefly talk about the, the Trump administration's response to the coronavirus crisis, how the president's uh, somewhat chaotic method collided with the realities of dealing with a pandemic, and how this led to an inadequate policy response that may have been actually the difference between um, Trump being re-elected in last November's election. Um, I'm going to just provide a, an overview of some of the main components of the, of the Trump administration's response and also some of Trump's most notable moments. Um, to relive any part of the Trump presidency is quite an exhausting exercise in itself. Um, the constant policy seesaws, the never-ending tweets, the, the general anarchy made a few days, let alone a week, seemed like a very long time. Um, suffice to say, um, and I've put some of the quotes from the first phase of the pandemic on this uh, slide. Um, but suffice to say, the, the first phase of the pandemic actually, I think, shared um, some similarities with, with um, uh, other countries, particularly European countries. Um, and that's to say that there was a denial that the virus was going to be that serious, um, urging calm, the population before moving quickly to uh, restrictions and then the first lockdowns as well as some financial support for individuals and, and business but from the, the from the summer the early summer in 2020 we then start to see the debates uh, about whether to reopen um, and the growing polarization in the US and I think from this point we can see a a real divergence between the US and, and, and other countries. I want to put, um, again, just a reminder of the way the, uh, the, the cases went in the US during 2020. And as the year went on and the election drew ever nearer, uh, these partisan splits widened, the discourse grew harsher, and the president himself became ever more erratic. I should also flag on the other side that um, uh, Trump did sign off on Operation Warp Speed in, in May to develop a vaccine, which perhaps he doesn't necessarily get much uh, credit for. It's a little bit of an outlier in, in this narrative. Um, but just to list some of the events that happened in the months before the election brings back some of the turbulence of the whole period, as Pete's already mentioned, we've got the, uh, the convention uh, that was held partly at the White House in August. Um, the, the haste to replace um, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in September, and then the, the lack of social distancing at the Rose Garden to confirm Amy Coney Barrett as um, a successor, what seemed to be a super spreader event. Um, Trump catching COVID, being admitted to hospital, performing the bizarre drive-by, uh, the awful spectacle of the first presidential debate, the no-show at the second one, and then perhaps most consequentially, the messaging about electoral fraud before and after uh, November's election, which culminated in the attack on the Capitol on January the 6th. So though, although much of this is of a piece with the, the rest of the Trump presidency, uh, it may be that the pandemic was actually crucial in in, in blowing his uh, possible re-election, of course. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me um, when I read Bob Woodward's book, Rage, one of his books on Trump, is that the apparent confidence that Woodward had at the beginning of 2020 uh, towards Trump's political position, that he seemed to be quite a strong position, 
having um, just survived impeachment before the um, before the pandemic uh, took hold. And although um, Trump's approval ratings weren't great by historical standards, I think we can see a slow incline from the low point of August 2017 um, to the start of 2020. And this could be um, linked with the state of the US economy. If we use the 1990s Bill Clinton mantra, it's the economy stupid. Actually, Trump's chances looked quite good um, by several indicators, GDP, jobs, employment, um, the US economy looked quite strong at the beginning of 2020, but there's an argument this is not necessarily due to the Trump administration's policies, this is long-term trends. Nevertheless, this could well have benefited um, uh, Trump in November 2020. So the pandemic could have, so just to finish, the pandemic could have shifted enough American voters into the Biden camp come um, election time and the strengths of Joe Biden. Um, he looked like a compromise candidate um, when he won the nomination and somewhat of an uninspiring choice. Um, some of his strengths, such as moderation and relative competence, or the, um, the appearance of uh, relative competence, um, probably seemed far more attractive um, than anticipated a few months before. So, as such, to summarise, the pandemic and the outcome of the election uh, were closely interrelated. This is kind of one of our themes. And without the pandemic, it could well be that President Trump would still be in office. So I'll, I'll hand over to Madison for a kind of um, forward-looking uh, view on um, last year's events. Yeah, thank you, Rob and Pete, um, for sort of recapping how we got to this point. I'll um, share my screen here and pull up my slides. Can everyone see them? I'm yeah, going to take that as a yes. Yeah. Okay. Now we can. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm sort of shifting forwards here to look at the future impact or the ongoing impact of the COVID-19 virus on the election. And it's really interesting because if you think about it from almost a bird's eye view or sort of a zoomed out view, in a lot of ways, the 2020 election was a success. We had in the US uh, the highest voter turnout rate in more than 100 years. And we also were or had a, a larger number of Americans total voters than in any other election before that. And so in some ways, we sort of avoided a, a crisis there with voting during the pandemic, but certainly COVID's impact on elections and, and on voting going forward isn't over and, and probably won't be for some time. Um, you know, during the pandemic, what we saw initially was an expansion of voting opportunities, and this included in places that are traditionally more conservative or have uh, more restrictive voting laws, uh, including my former home state of Texas. The uh, picture on the left shows drive-through voting in Harris County, which is home to Houston, the largest city uh, in the state. And drive-through voting was just one of the methods that Harris County 
implemented in response to the pandemic to allow people to vote safely. They also implemented uh, 24-hour polling places, expanded access to mail-in voting and, and ballot drop boxes to allow people to vote. But as Robin Pete sort of touched on already, after the election happens in November, this time last year, we then see the, the shift towards misinformation and uh, you know, doubting about the integrity of the election or the security of the election. And what we're seeing now in 2021 is an actual reversal of those same expansions that were put in place uh, just the year before. So the picture on your right is Texas Governor Abbott signing Senate Bill 1 into law uh, just about two months ago. And, and this law uh, is specifically put in place to ban those expanded voting opportunities that we originally saw in, in 2020, such as the drive-through voting and 24-hour uh, polling and things like that. So Texas certainly isn't alone here in, in acting in this way to restrict voting or make it more difficult after those expanded opportunities during the pandemic. Um, by my most recent count, there's at least 17 other states that have also uh, similarly joined in and passed similar type of legislation. Of course, this legislation and these new voting laws, they're not occurring in a political vacuum. In fact, they have you know very real consequences for voters. And it's really interesting here to see the overlap between these two maps. The map on your left shows the 2020 electoral votes from the election. Obviously, the states in blue are the states that President Biden won, where the states in red are the states that Trump carried in the election. And if you look to the map on your right, what we have is a um, map showing the percentage of the total population in each state that's fully vaccinated. And if we compare the two, the states that Biden carried in the 2020 election are also the states that are generally uh, showing higher vaccination rates. So those are the states in the map on the right that are darker shades of blue. And on the flip side, we can see that uh, the states that Trump carried were um, are the states that are now showing low vaccination rates or states that are lagging behind significantly in vaccinating their populations. And the question of, well, what does this mean is that not only are these states with low vaccination rates not vaccinating their people, but they're also the states where generally Republican-led state legislatures are now passing these uh, voting-restricting bills that I mentioned. And the effects of these bills is that really what these, these states are doing is forcing people to vote in person or, or to drive them to the polls during an ongoing pandemic. So we are in 2021, the pandemic hasn't gone away. Today's election day, people are voting in some states under new laws that were passed as a direct result of the COVID-19 pandemic and they've voted or the expanded voting opportunities of last year. And so there's certainly a health risk there, right? When you drive people to the polls in states with low vaccination rates, People, if they want to vote or engage in the political process, have to weigh the risks of potential exposure to the virus, um, potential contraction of the virus, 
And in a lot of these states with low vaccination rates, people are also going to the polls without, you know, guidelines such as having masks or, or anything like that, because these are states that are generally not masking or social distancing anymore either. But like Pete mentioned during his talk, there's also a much more significant risk as well, which is quite frankly, a risk for democracy and the participation in the political process, because as history would, would indicate, uh, voting legislation like this significantly and historically has a, a disproportionate impact on communities and voters of color. So those would be African Americans and Latino Americans uh, specifically through our history. can see here is that these populations are also more likely to have uh, severe impacts from the COVID-19 virus. They've, throughout the past year and a half or so, they've been disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 virus and are now also being uh, forced to vote under new legislation that disproportionately is going to impact them or limit their access to the voting process. So we get almost this double whammy situation where uh, vulnerable populations are now forced to contend with both health risks to engage in the political process and uh, democracy risks where their ability to actually do that and to engage and vote is limited. And like Pete mentioned and like our brief talks about, you know, some of these voting laws that are being passed, they're not accidentally uh, limiting access to the vote. Um, you know, suffice to say, as I mentioned previously with Harris County, you know, if Harris County was full of white voters who were voting for Trump in a Republican state like Texas, we can pretty confidently say that the legislature wouldn't have fought so hard to uh, get rid of those expanded voting opportunities. But of course, Harris County, which is home to Houston, is home to a large Latino population and skews strongly Democrat. And so the methods there for the Texas legislature is to remove those expanding opportunities. So there is explicit uh, voter suppression that has arisen out of COVID-19 pandemic and voting during the 2020 election during that pandemic. And then finally, if we sort of zoom out again, and think about how far-reaching the effects of COVID-19 are on voting and are on our elections. Um, you know, like I said, 18 states thus far have passed new voting laws, making it harder for people to vote in this country. Um, some of those states are voting today under these new laws. Some of these states won't have these new laws in effect until the 2022 midterm elections. But by the midterms next year, I mean, the voting landscape will definitely have changed. People will not have the voting opportunities that they had in 2020 that led to expanded engagement and the higher turnout rate and the more total voters than ever before, like I mentioned previously. Also, we can likely guess that by 2022 midterms, COVID-19 will still be around. Um, if I had to guess by that point, We'll mostly be learning to live with it since the states that are lagging behind on vaccination rates don't appear to uh, be increasing their momentum. 
in that aspect in terms of vaccinating their populations. Another aspect for a consideration of COVID's effect on voting and elections going forward is the aspect of population shifts. Obviously, first and foremost, we can't uh, discount or disregard the fact that um, more than 740,000 Americans have died as a result of this pandemic. Obviously, not all of those people were voters. It includes children and people who probably weren't registered to vote or didn't vote anyways, but that's still a significant decrease in voting eligible population. There's also uh, the aspect to consider that during the pandemic, it's estimated around one in 10 people in the US moved during the pandemic. So that's equating to approximately 32 or 33 million people. Obviously, again, not all of those people who moved are going to be eligible voters. But still, if these people who moved during the pandemic uh, stay at the places that they moved to permanently, this has a, an opportunity to shift populations in states um, and even to shift uh, congressional district outcomes if, for example, uh, as happened, a lot of people moved from urban cities to more suburban or rural areas. So we could see a shift in outcomes there where people who have moved have also taken their political ideologies and party leanings with them as they've relocated, which could change the demographics and across the U.S. here in terms of voting and populations. There's also uh, to consider the fact that we saw during the pandemic, a lot of people move outside of their states, including, uh, for example, a lot of Californians who were maybe more conservative or, or Republican Californians moving to Texas to get away from the uh, imposing restrictions of the California uh, lockdown measures and mask mandates and all things like that to Texas, which has essentially declared itself open for business since pretty much the beginning of this year. And then finally, just to wrap up and sort of to jump in or, or set the stage for our conversation uh, Q&A after this, we can certainly see already today that COVID-19 as an issue is certainly on the ballot. That's to say that voters are judging incumbents based on how well they've handled the pandemic. Uh, they're judging challengers based on how well people present themselves as being able to handle the pandemic, handle the pandemic should they be uh, elected. And I think by the time the midterms come around and we're voting for senators and representatives, uh, we're going to see people also voting based on issues that have arisen from the pandemic, such as the economy, uh, unemployment, benefits, supply chain shortages, things like that. So I think, like I mentioned at the beginning, you know, we may have skirted that disaster uh, in 2020 in terms of voting safely during a pandemic and voting in large numbers, but COVID-19's impact on our American elections certainly isn't going anywhere. Um, and it should be interesting both to, to watch and to discuss here. I'll stop sharing my screen so we can go back. That's wonderful, Madison. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much to all our speakers. Uh